All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Last week we picked up this verse in part and saw that the Apostle Paul approached the Corinthians observing a need that they had to fix fellowship, right? This is a passage about fellowship and it's a passage highlighting the need for how we do relational elements in the body of Christ to somehow get, get an upgrade and get adjusted here. There is a piece of this that we're very familiar with, right? Because if we celebrate communion, which we're going to celebrate today, this passage might be the passage that gets picked up and presented to us as we go to do that. So let's just zero in on that aspect of it and I'll back us out of it a little bit more as we study. Verse 23. Paul says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the lord's death until he comes so father we are grateful again for your hand-picked words placed in scripture to land in our lives today. Lord, we need these words or you would not have given them to us. So Lord, help us to see how they find our, their way into our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were sitting with Charles Spurgeon and he was handling this passage back in 1855, this is what he would have said to you. He says, it seems then that Christians may forget Christ. The text implies the possibility of forgetfulness concerning him whom gratitude and affection should constrain them to remember. There could be no need for this loving exhortation if there were not a fearful supposition that our memories might prove treacherous and our remembrance superficial in its character or changing in its nature. Nor is this a bare supposition It is, alas, too well confirmed in our experience, not as a possibility, but as a lamentable fact. I appeal to the conscience of every Christian here. Can you deny the truth of what I utter? Do you not find yourselves forgetful of Jesus? Some creature steals away your heart, and you are mindful of him upon whom your affection ought to be set. Some earthly business engrosses your attention when you should have your eyes steadily fixed upon the cross. It is the incessant round of world, world, world. The the constant din of earth, earth, earth that takes away the soul from Christ. Oh, my friends, is it not too sadly true that we can recollect anything but Christ and forget nothing so easy as him whom we ought to Remember, this is, this is not an 1855 problem, is it? 
And oh, if Charles Spurgeon had any idea what the world was going to be like in the future when he said, world, 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 earth, earth, earth. Oh, my, 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 (laughs) Uh, how much that has increased. I I wish I could stand up here and say that I I don't have this problem. I, I don't have this forgetfulness problem. I don't have this sense that sometimes the reality and the bigness and the grandeur and the wonder and the beauty of Christ aren't just too far away from me. And what's near to me is just eating my lunch and getting my attention. So we have these moments in scripture where the apostle Paul brings remedy to this tendency that we have to forget Christ. Just to have him too far away from what's going on in our lives. And and that's the experience here for the Corinthians, right? Um, We're going to get something interesting here in in this passage chapter 11 and then chapter 12 as well. We get some divine details, if you will, into some categories that we we don't get anywhere else in scripture, quite honestly. This is the most amount of teaching on the Lord's Supper that's going to be found in the New Testament. So we're going to get lots of details on what it is that we're doing here. This very important thing, this, this central element of Christian practice of celebrating the Lord's Supper is unpacked here, and you back up into chapter 10, it gets mentioned as well. So this one letter contains most of the information that we have as to why do we celebrate communion, and what's it all about? And by the way, what we're about to explore in chapter 12 is the most amount of information on spiritual gifts that is in all of the New Testament. Did you realize why we get that information, both of them? We get it because the of a Corinthian dysfunction, if you will. It's because the Corinthians are so out of bounds in these categories that this subject even comes up. Right? When you traffic through 1 Corinthians, you don't get Paul sitting down with a group and saying, okay, welcome to Systematic Theology 101. Uh, our first topic is going to be God, and then we're going to move on to man, and then we're going to have a, a session on prayer. And, oh, why don't we next, we'll bring up the Lord's Supper. That's not how we get this topic. This topic comes out of Paul interacting with the lives that are being lived in Corinth. And he gets to the point, as we said last week, where the fellowship dimension of their life has sort of the wheels have come off of it. And their experience together in their human relationships as God's people have become so poor and so dysfunctional. That generates this topic. Somehow, the celebration of communion does something to this thing we call fellowship. So when Paul sees fellowship is dysfunctional, he immediately thinks your celebration of communion is dysfunctional. It it can't be right because if it was, this would be different. And he's going to do the same thing to spiritual gifts next. The reason why we're going to learn about spiritual gifts is because both of the the correct and incorrect practice of what they were doing with spiritual gifts. So, So this is where we get this topic from. Right, So when you come together, verse 20, if we backed up into where this verse kind of lights us up, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. All right, so if you just take this on face value, there's an argument here because the Corinthians are going to push back and say, well, of course it's the Lord's Supper that we eat when we come together. We have the bread, we have the wine. We sit down, we eat the meal. Of course, it's the Lord's Supper that we eat. Did you know you can do things 
on the surface and on the outside and in the Bible's estimation failed to do them. We just did something, right? We just, we just sang. I hope all of you did sing. I'm not sure all of us sing when we come in here. But let's suppose you sang. Does that mean you worshipped? It could. Your singing could be a pouring out of your affections, of your wonder, of your awe, of your amazement, of your declaring that there is no God like this God and you could stand in amazement and awe and wonder. Or you could just be singing some words, couldn't you? All right, so... They were going through something on the outside. They got together, so at least they were having a meeting, and they were eating bread and wine. But Paul says, uh, but you're not. You're not celebrating the Lord's Supper. All right, so let me just give a quick little context for this whole idea that why are they even doing this? Well, where do we get the practice of communion from? Where does this idea come from? Well, Paul briefly explains it here and then explains what it's about. And I'm going to move to what it's about more quickly. So, right, verse 23, Paul says he received it from the Lord. It, so it was inaugurated somewhere else. Where, where does this meal come from? This is not Paul going to Corinth and saying, hey, I've got an idea. How about, how about when you come together, you eat this kind of meal with these kind of things and this is what it means, et cetera, et cetera. He says, no, no, I received this from the Lord. What's he talking about? Well, on the night that he was betrayed, this is what the Lord did. He inaugurated this meal. But remember, he was celebrating something else when he turned that meal into this new covenant meal. He was celebrating Passover. So Jesus was connecting the old story of the Old Testament about this Passover lamb and his blood being shed and, and this meal that would be eaten to remember this covenant with God based on the shed blood of the lamb that was being eaten. He says, that was all about this. So it wasn't like, well, there was this old thing they used to do and now this is new. No, no, no it's a continuation of it. This is the answer to that. And so this new meal that we're going to eat is very much related to what the Old Testament picture of Passover was explaining. So that's where Paul gets this idea. And that's pretty important because it helps you understand this meal that we're eating. And it, it guards us from making it mean the wrong thing which in a lot of Christendom today, it means the wrong, it means nothing to some, or it means the wrong thing to others. All right, so there's, there's two physical elements in this meal. There is bread and there's wine in this. So there's a cup that means something. There's bread that means something in this. But, but there's an immaterial, an inward mental thing going on as well. And that's what I want, I want us to live in that word today. It's the word remembrance. Do all these things, go through all these motions in remembrance of me. This is a meal that features remembering. And, and I, I want to I put that before us today. I mean, we're actually going to have a moment where that's what we're going to practice doing. We're going to together take some quiet moment together and we're going to practice. Rem- what does it feel like to actually remember? Because listen, I can be honest with you and say I, I've... I've done the communion meal celebration without remembering. Just kind of raced through it, gone through the motions of it. 
But the, this meal calls us to remember something. Now, let me just say this. I'm a little, install a little asterisk here. And you come ask me a question about this. If I'm about to say something, that makes you stumble a little bit. It's important to notice, since I am saying, and if you want to read the New Testament and verify this, I encourage you to do that. This is the most detailed explanation for this meal in the New Testament. In the future in church history, this meal was going to get associated with words like communion and the Eucharist. And churches were going to practice this and it was going to begin to mean different things to different people. And so the tradition you may have grown up in began to feature, feature ideas that are not in this passage. And you would do well, and I would encourage you to do this, study what you believe about this thing called communion and find out where did the ideas that are in you come from? Where'd you get these ideas? Because I can tell you, that there are, there are ideas here that actually diminish what the Holy Spirit does in the New Testament. Because th- there, there became an installed idea that what was happening here was this mysterious change of the bread being turned into the actual flesh of Christ and the cup being turned into the actual blood of Christ. So that turning into that became a centerpiece for this. Now, just quite honestly... Do you see that in this passage? This is the most detailed presentation of communion in the Bible. Apart from Christ presenting it. Paul now is going to explain to the church that meal. If that was that important of an issue, do you think in the one place that he clarified the communion meal, he would have taken that up and explained the centrality of this is actually now the flesh of Christ and the blood of Christ that you are partaking of. It is a sacrament that uniquely imparts grace. Do you, that idea, do you think the Apostle Paul in explaining to the church what this meal is would have touched base on that at some level? He would have said something about that? Do you think the idea that this is the means through which we actually receive the presence of Christ into our lives, as important as that is, can you think of something on a daily basis more important to your life than the actual presence of the living God with you? If by receiving these elements, this bread and this wine, You were actually receiving Christ. Do you think the Apostle Paul would not have said something about that here? Seeing as he's not going to pick this topic up again in the entire New Testament. If this is that important to being a Christian, do we not think the Bible would have jumped all over this opportunity right here? But yet when you read it, you don't see that. There's and, and, and one of the biggest things, one of the biggest things is once you start believing that what we do today is a means of you actually receiving the presence of Christ in your life, then, then this is what you look to in order to experience that. Can I tell you the New Testament does not look to this for that? And if you just pick the Bible up and read it, the New Testament looks a lot 
a lot for the New Testament Christian to actually experience the presence of God in his life. A lot. Matter of fact, it it contrasts the New Testament experience with the old. It speaks a lot about this better covenant that we have. But do you know how you receive the presence of Christ in your life? By receiving the Holy Spirit. That's the teaching all over the New Testament. When the New Testament gets inaugurated, if you will, and there's that day of Pentecost, when the Spirit is given and the tongues of fire sit on top of each believer's head, what was that? It was God saying, my presence is no longer in that temple building where the glory used to reside. My presence by the fire is in you and in you and in you. And this fire distributed himself to everybody in that upper room. And they all received the presence of the Holy Spirit. So if you're here today and you want to experience and know the presence of God, and you should want that, do not look to communion. Look to the Holy Spirit to experience that. And one of the sad realities is if you've been taught that to receive the presence of Christ and to associate that with communion, you come to receive something that you should be experiencing through another means every day of your life. That's what the New Testament teaches about this issue of communion. Let me go back to Paul's reasoning here. He's going to link some things together here. I think I'll put this in the outline. If you were properly celebrating communion, Corinthians, your fellowship would be different. It's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Because if you were eating it, so so just eating bread and drinking wine that... No, no, no. But the remembrance, the remembrance would do something to you. If you were truly remembering, it would have such an impact on you that it would transform the way you do life with each other. Right? So I wrote out, given that they were eating and drinking, assuming that there was bread and wine involved, what's missing here is the remembrance. Apparently, there's power in remembering. Life-transforming, attitude-adjusting power in remembering. And so I want to feature that dimension from this passage and from the celebration of communion. It is a meal of remembrance, right? So last week, and if you weren't here last week, please go, maybe go have a listen to what was taking place in Corinth, that Paul's, this is what's generating this conversation from Paul, right? He looks into their lives and he says, you know, I don't, I don't see the impact of remembering Christ. I, I see divisions, right? Verse 18, he says, when you come together, that there are divisions among you. There are displaced loyalties. You don't, you don't come together and rally around the sense that God has made us all one. From all the diversity of humanity that he's brought us from poor and upper class and lower class and down and out and different. God has brought us all together into a community of people. That I don't see among you, right? So he highlights these divisions. He says, you come together and there's this, there's this selfish, inward, self-looking motivation that you come together, you, you have your own meal, you're looking out for just you and your buds. Instead of coming together with the mindset that there are people among you who have need, who are less fortunate than you, who you could minister to, you give your life away to them. You don't come together that way. So he highlights all these falling short dimensions and that's what generates this topic but 
Let me have you flip over to Philippians chapter 2 here. Because Paul's going to do the same thing to the, to the Philippians as he's doing to the Corinthians. And I kind of want to unpack this a little bit just so you can see. What is Paul trying to accomplish here? Because he's going he's to do the same mind trick, if you will, to them as he does to the Corinthians. The Corin- he bumps into this topic because the Corinthians are having a fellowship problem. And he says, ah, that makes me think about how well you're remembering. And if you were remembering, you would be doing that when you celebrate the Lord's Supper. Now, he's going to do just something like that. Philippians chapter, back up into chapter 1, verse 27. We'll start reading and then we'll skip to chapter 2. Verse 27 says, only let your manner of life be worthy of of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and skip to chapter 2 verse 1 so if there's any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of Others, right? Does this sound like a conversation he could have been having with the Corinthians? Right? right? Philippi is just a, you know, a few hours north of Corinth. And they're, they're human beings, right? They're like us. We've got these issues. They travel in our bloodstream. And at some point, we find reasons to not be able to, to come together in unity and join with one another. So the Philippians had this problem. The Corinthians had this problem. And, and Paul's going to use the same approach to helping fix it. He's going to call on them to remember some things. He does it through the communion vehicle. But in Philippians, look in chapter 2 verse 5 there in Philippians. He turns and says the same thing to them. Have this mind among yourselves, right? Fill your mind with these realities. Have this be what your mind is occupied with. Which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice this. When you read the Bible, you you should be looking for these things. Because there's a lot in the Bible that's what we call occasional. Which doesn't mean it happens every once in a while. It, It means that it's there because there was an occasion that caused it to be there. Right, so when you read scripture, especially the epistles, but, but the prophets as well, there's much in scripture that it, it, it's not a systematic theology approach, right? Because if it was, and you read Galatians, you'd be going, Paul, this is all you're going to talk about? 
this is pretty narrow. You're going to just live in the one doctrine, the justification of faith. And, and what about this? What about this, Paul? What about this? What about this? Well, Paul's not trying to do all that. There's an occasion for the Galatians. There's an occasion for the Corinthians. There's an occasion for the Philippians. Paul stares into that occasion and he says, here's what needs to come to you. Because you're having a hard time doing life together. You're having a hard time being unified, having the same purpose coursing in your heart and in your veins. And listen, you know, as a pastor, it's very easy for me to pick these passages up and rightly use them as it pertains to the fellowship of the church. Because that's, that is what this passage is about. But I know when you walk out of here, uh, it's your marriage, it's your family, it's other dimensions of relationships that, that these things are speaking to them as well. That, that there's a place here where how do you and your wife or your husband find unity? How do, as a family, how do you find this sense of unity and togetherness as, as people that you're walking with and the friends and you're doing the kingdom of God? How do you find this? Well, remembering something is going to be extremely, extremely important in this endeavor. So what is remembering? Here's my definition for remembering. It is the act of mentally moving other realities onto the scene of our current life moment. Right? When you pull up an old photo, when you look back at that, you know, you're kids were little or you did that family vacation right it's amazing how whatever's going on in that moment it it can get adjusted just like that right because what what did you do you you took this moment and you informed it by grabbing something from outside of this moment you pulled it into this moment and and it brought a smile to your face and you're like oh remember that and, and suddenly there's this impact, right? That's what remembering does. It is an act of importing something that was absent and not part of that setting. Right? When you remember something, whether it's something you experienced or something that Christ has done, you are going outside the moment, outside the setting, and you're getting something that you're going to bring into this setting. And the expectation of Paul is that when you bring that here, it will affect what's going on right here. Lastly, it is supplying reasonings that touch current reasonings that we find in the setting of our lives. I said, do you you have any reasons to be unhappy right now? Anybody? That's a rare experience these days do you have reasons i mean think for a second with me keep it real give me reasons to be unhappy i'm not going away i'm gonna make you think about this (laughs) so you're standing in a moment where maybe as far as the eye can see or at least what's up close and what's near to you and what's pressing on you produces feelings life does and and you feel unhappy about that right now what the bible screams at us is you're going you're going to need to remember something which means you're going to need to reach outside of that moment and find something to import into that moment A, a picture that puts a smile on your face if you will because it it makes you aware of other things that are real and that are important. Right? So that's what this passage is trying to do. Right? So we are remembering here in 1 Corinthians 11, 
verse 23 to 26, we are remembering something. Do this in remembrance of me. And there's some elements here that aid us in the remembering. That's what these things are. There's a broken body here. That in the emblem of that bread is a broken body. Jesus says, remember, remember, my body was broken for you. There is a cup here that's inaugurating a new covenant. Remember in your moments and season, this new covenant that has come to you. Remember the Lord's death. You are proclaiming his death. Remember Jesus Christ died. Remember that. And do this until he comes. So therefore remember I, I am coming back for you. Right, so, so at least there's four things here. Right? I think we could say there's more. There's at least four things right here. But, but can I just warn us and encourage us that these four things don't They're not exhaustive and they're not even well spelled out. This is why I picked up the Philippians passage so you can see this. These are headlines. These are are the headings over a subsection of a story. That's all they are. So when he says, my body which was broken, there needs to be paragraphs underneath that. That you and I as disciples can fill that in. That's why we need to take notes home and study them and, and get a little bit more information than what we get just in an hour message. I, I need more information. I need more than the headlines. Right now, I don't know how you guys are in reading and studying. I can remember this is, I don't know if anybody else did something this weird and stupid. But I can remember being in fourth grade and I hated reading. Hated it. So, you know, you had these literature assignments that your teacher would send you home with. And there was something conflicting in me because I didn't want to lie about whether I had done my homework or not. There was at least a little bit of moral to me. I didn't want to lie whether I'd read this or not. So somehow I invented my own way of reading. (laughs) And as long as I did my way of reading, I said that I read the assignment for the evening. Well, my own way of reading included reading the little headlines above the sections so I'd read the headlines and then I didn't feel like that was thorough enough so I might I might skim but more than likely I would just read the first word in each line (laughs) you don't have to show your hands but nobody else did anything this stupid right I mean this is like what and somehow I felt like I could the next day I could say I read the assignment okay um you, you can't know this stuff that way. Right? These, these things are headlines that need paragraphs. Under, which, by the way, you know, the, the, the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, is the same sort of a thing. Right? When Jesus said, when you pray, pray this way. He, he didn't mean just repeat these words over and over and over again. Our Father, who I know, now I'll be able to Okay, done. No, I, he meant headlines. Our Father, stop! How many paragraphs are underneath that phrase for you? That when you go to pray, your heart is full of an awareness of what it means for God to be your father. Paragraphs filled in, filled in, filled in from what you have seen in scripture, from what God has revealed about himself, who are in heaven. Stop. You might never even make it through this prayer. Right? You paragraphs 
of what does it mean to be praying to a God who's, who's doing life from 30,000 feet, if you will. Who sees everything. Who He's not just in heaven. I'm aware that he's in heaven on a throne, ruling and governing everything. So when I go to pray, I'm not just praying a phrase that's lost its meaning. I'm aware this God is sitting on a throne, ruling every moment of his creation. And I'm praying to him right now. That affects me. These words are intended to affect us. And so we can't rush through communion and let them be missed. Interesting thought from Ed Welch from his new book, A Small Book for the Anxious Heart. My wife turned me on to this book the other day. He describes St. Augustine and his wrestling with God to have faith in a moment. I thought, well, this this is us, isn't it? It says, Augustine tried to cast his cares on the Lord. And it didn't work. That happens all the time. We ask Jesus to take away our miseries and worries and nothing happens. So we move on to other strategies. And this is what Augustine said in, in, in his confessions. He says, Thou, God, wert not to me any solid or substantial thing. For thou were not thyself but a mere phantom. And my error was my God. If I had offered to discharge my load thereon, that it might rest, it glided through the void and came rushing down again on me. Right? This is a man saying, my version of God was like a fluffy little cloud. Light, not dense and weighty and strong and incredible. So that when I pick my life and its worries up and I set it on that God, whoop! Right back on me. Right back on me. Just falls right through the cloud and sits back on me again. What's the problem? Well, his construction of God is the problem. His awareness of God is the problem. God is not a fluffy cloud. But you didn't know that, did you? And that lack of knowing that in these moments kills us. Ed Welch says, our growth... Let's assume that... Often, we have much in common with this fine saint. Our growth in facing fears and anxieties is slow because it is tied to our knowledge of, our trust in the Lord. That kind of trust doesn't grow simply because we've landed on an eye-opening passage of Scripture. Instead, God's truths must gradually become a part of us. This this is what remembering does. This is what a well-crafted exercise of remembering does. It it constructs God in the reality of who God really is. And so that when life goes to sit on that God, it's amazing how that God can hold that up and who he can be in those moments. But if we're not doing a good job remembering, listen, this is why you have notes. This is why, you know, because this message can just be fluffy little points like, oh, I never noticed that in that passage before. Oh, eye-opening moment. Look at that. I didn't know that passage meant that. And we just move on. And that's as deep as it gets. Listen, when when you go to set your life on that, it's going to be like a fluffy little cloud. And your life's going to come falling right back in your lap. And you're going to wonder, why is God, why does this not feel real? Where is God? Etc. This is what remembering does, right? So if I unpack Philippians chapter 2 here real quickly. This is an exercise in remembering. So what Paul does in Philippians 2 is he, 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 he kind of unpacks what's in 1 Corinthians 11. 
Right? The same mindset. Have this mind in yourselves. And so he starts in verse 6. Have this mind in yourselves, verse 6. That though he was in the form of God. Right? You, you, you got to stop for a moment there and go, wow, what was that? How, how high up the food chain was that? Yet, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men right you know this is like uh like a drawing that installs a scale right this is God installing a scale you want to have some idea of what kind of intentionality God has towards you what kind of love God has towards you how motivated is God to really get involved in your mess right because we, we we're wondering about that every day of our lives we're wondering about that God answers by installing scale and he says, oh, you, you want to know? Okay, let's remember this. The one who came here as a bloodied servant, who obeyed his father to the point of death, being not just a servant, not, not just a meager individual on the landscape of humanity, but one who was going to go to the most horrific death, a death on a cross, and shed his blood. Do you have any idea who that person was? He existed as God. He was God himself. Do you have any idea how far the distance is from that location to that bloody guy on that cross right there? Do you have any idea how far that is? And you're wondering whether he loves you or not. Whether he really cares about what's going on. How many many of us just could be indicted this week because we question whether God really cares about what's going on in my life? This is an act of remembrance. This is Paul saying, hey, hey, you you want to get a hold of life? Here, start with this. Be aware of how far God came to rescue us. That's what we sang about earlier. And then then this is scattered all throughout Scripture. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, which all of us can be very easily convinced of, this is a present time of suffering, but they're not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is an act of remembering, comparing. So I've got suffering going on right now, but I'm, I'm going to reach outside of my suffering, and I'm going to grab the glory that is to be revealed, and I'm going to pull it into my situation, and I'm going to compare. Right? I'm going to compare these things. I'm going to have an argument with my misery by grabbing that which comes from outside of my setting and comparing those things. Where did I get that idea? Well, I'm remembering that there are promises that have been made to me about a future glory that is to be revealed. Romans 8 goes on and illustrates this great distance, this great love, pursuit from God. Verse 31, he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, well, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How may not also with him graciously give us all things? This is a scale word. This is, this is a reminder. God didn't just, you know, in the past, he just, he came about that far to get involved in our mess. And, you know, that's about as far as you can expect him to go in the future. No, no, no. God spent the most expensive thing he could ever spend on our behalf. The life of his own son. And you're wondering whether he'll spend something less on your need right now. 
whether he'll engage your moments, whether he'll come pursuing you. You're wondering that? But if he did this, the wonder's over, isn't it? Goes on in verse 38, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, things present or things to come or powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. How do you you get to sounding like, I am sure, I am sure. How do you get to, I am sure? By remembering, by calling to mind, by importing the realities of who Christ is and what he has done. Verse 6 is an interesting remembering. Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Oh, that is so helpful. Right? Look in your outline there. I wrote this out. Remember from verse 6, the most fully alive human being who ever lived did life without grasping. He lived life by entrusting himself to the Father. Jesus didn't wake up every morning figuring out who to manipulate, how to manipulate, how to be in control of everything. How to freak out today because, oh my gosh, this could happen. That, I got to make that. I got to make that. I got to make that. All about his own ability to generate life for himself. He didn't wake up that way. He woke up with a sense of just entrusting himself to the Father. Right? When you go back and you, and you read the Corinthians and you read the Philippians at some level... How many of you can be suspicious that they were having a hard time getting along because they were graspers? What's a grasper? Just a person who wants something for themselves. That's all a grasper is. Can you imagine the difficulties? You can because you live in them, right? When you become a grasper or somebody around you becomes a grasper, they they begin to take only their interest and they're going to grab something at your expense and a lack of consideration for you, and and you're going to feel the impact of that because something inside of us tells us we desperately need that thing right there. So we become ambitious for it, and we become controlled by our ambitions. And then we become reckless, and we hurt the people around us. Jesus, though he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He just entrusted himself. The father said, go. And he said, I'm going. There wasn't this grasping. There wasn't this, you go. (laughs) I mean, hey, I'm God too, you know. We're equal in this. I don't know if you've read, Father, the Trinity element. Um, And I'm also all-knowing too, so I know what awaits me. I know what that's going to be like to become a creature rather than the creator. I'm, I'm, I'm down with that. I get that. Uh, I, I know what the fallenness of humanity is going to do to whoever shows up in that human suit. So you go. No. He did not consider that was to be grasped. 
His ambition was to be in harmony with the purpose of God. That was his ambition. To entrust himself to God. This is, this is what the Godhead does, right? So this is very helpful for us when, when we face our own temptations as to whether we want to do it or not, right? Remember, in your outline there, fulfillment, purpose, significance, meaning, reward... For Jesus, they came through fulfilling the Father's will. This is the right mindset for a human being. Let this mind be in you. Remember this. Let this be the way your mind functions. That you are an entruster, not a grasper. And Jesus illustrated that all the time. John 5, 19, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing. Of his own accord. But only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does. That the son does in like, in like manner. This is the mindset of Jesus. So when the Bible calls on us to remember. These, this is the kind of stuff you're importing. Into this remembering. Whether you're a Philippian or Corinthian. Or from Lakeview. John chapter 12. Jesus says now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? For this purpose I came to this hour. Father, I entrust myself to you. Glorify your name. Right, for everybody who just pondered, you know, whether or not you're happy in this moment. Are, are, is, your, is your life got trouble in it? Are you troubled by something that's going on in your life right now? Because when I identify trouble, what kicks into me is a grasping. You know, I'm, I'm grasping for security. I'm grasping for safety. I'm grasping to fix that. I'm grasping to change that person's mind. I'm grasping to have the right audience at the right moment with the right person. Versus entrusting. Father, glorify your name. Mm. Well, that, that'll mean you're headed to the cross tomorrow. That's where that's going to land. I trust you. That's what you have. That's why I'm here. I'm not going to say change this for me. I'm here for you and for your glory. Jesus prayed that same prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. If there's any way for this cup to pass me. But not my will, but your will being done. So when you and I go to remember something, to import something, the most alive human being who ever lived on the face of this earth lived his life entrusting himself to God. That has an impact on a lot of things. And that's one last thing that gets brought up here that at least one last thing we'll spend time in. Verse 9 of Philippians 2 says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. No, the one who was the servant, the one who got bludgeoned, the one who was treated like a nobody. He's now exalted so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So when I remember that, right? Here's a couple of remembrance points in your outline there. Remember, this tyranny of sin and its accompanying spiritual warfare will end. 
Whatever it is, that's an, it will end and we will actually reign with Christ. I, I'm going to have to import that in because this moment doesn't feel like that's what's happening, right? Remember that life is filled with momentary things. The Bible says a lot about that. Your situation is not permanent and it's not reigning or self-governing. Whoever's in your life, they're not self-governing. Whatever circumstances in your life, it's not self-governing. Whatever sicknesses in your life, it's not self-governing. Everything has been subjected to Christ and put underneath his feet. Life answers to God and follows a path that ends in exaltation and glory and celebrating and triumph. That's the truth. So when Jesus says, do this in remembrance, in remembrance of me, this remembering dimension of this is radical and powerful and impacting, right? No insult to Cliff here. Cliff, no insult. But remembering is more like injecting drugs into your veins than it is like getting mail in your mailbox. No offense, Cliff, but I'm just not all that transformed and impacted by the mail that comes in my mailbox. I'm aware that it's there. You know, even heard the mailbox, the mailman drive by, heard the box open and close. I may or may not open all the stuff that's there. Right, listen, you, we, we could be treating revelation from God this way, right? It's kind of revelation in the mailbox just sitting there. No, 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 no. No, to remember is to have this stuff injected in your veins. You former drug users get what I'm saying, right? Man, because if you injected stuff in your veins and it did nothing for you, it'd be the last time you injected them. I mean, there was pain involved, right? You had to shoot up. That was painful. But it did something for you. It was like, woo, man. There was a response. There was an engagement that took place. Uh, remembering is more like that. And so if your remembering never feels that way to you, can I say you got to work on your remembering a lot? Because God intends to, to jazz you, to do something to you when you actually import these realities. Paul's diagnosis for the Corinthians as well as the Philippians was that they needed a giant dose of remembering. And that's what the communion meal invites us to do. Not mere calling to mind the subtitles and eating a cracker and drinking a cup, but remembering something. And that's what we're going to do in just a moment. I'll give you one other thought from Mr. Charles Spurgeon here to zero this remembering in in a certain way. Charles says, this do in remembrance of me. Christians have many treasures to lock up in the cabinet of memory. They ought to remember their election. Chosen of God, your time began. They ought to be mindful of their extraction that they were taken out of the miry clay, hewn out of the horrible pit. They ought to recollect their effectual calling, for they were called of God and rescued by the power of the Holy Ghost. They ought to remember their special deliverances, all that's been done for them, all the mercies bestowed on them. But there is one whom they should embalm in the soul and their soul's with the most costly spices, one who above all other gifts of God deserves to be had in perpetual remembrance. One, I said, for I mean not an act, I mean not a deed, 
but it is a person whose portrait I would frame in gold and hang up in the stateroom of my soul. It is a person. It is a person. Do this in remembrance of me. I know it's tempting, and even Charles Spurgeon just did it in his paragraph here, and I just did it by picking up Philippians. The Christian life is filled with truths, with principles, with ideas, with doctrines. We need to know those things. We, we need to get around those things. We need to learn those things. But those things serve a purpose. They bring us to a person. They bring us to the living God. Our destination is not just that we have memorized a doctrine, can argue it and can explain it. That doctrine was taking us somewhere. It was taking us to a person. When Jesus says, do this in remembrance of the doctrine of the Passover, of the doctrine of justification. No, no. And and he teaches all those things and he models all those things. So none of us have permission to blow that off. But they're taking us somewhere. They're taking us to a restored relationship with a living God, to his nearness, to his intimacy, to experiencing his life, to his breath breathed upon us, to the courage that comes, not because you were told to be courageous, but the courage that just comes because I know he's with me. Come on. You want to take me on? You got to take him on. I know he's with me. I know his presence with me. This is, this is an invitation to God. Listen, I, I have a prayer closet. I live in my prayer closet, I hope, sufficiently. But I reserve a piece of that prayer closet for communion with the living God. Not, with the, not for an agenda. Not for needs. Not for your needs. Not for the future of the church. Not, not, just for him. For the, for the fact that I'm a, I'm a creature created for my creator. And regardless of what else is going on. What other big agendas might be waiting in the kingdom of God. I, I'm a creature created for my creator. And he delights to be with me. And me with him. And so there's a piece of my time with God that's just about that. It's just about taking a walk with God. It's just about relating to him. It's just about celebrating stuff and noticing things and having a conversation. Do this in remembrance of me. Now here's what, here's what I'd like for us to do. We're going to celebrate communion together this morning. But... Together, right now, we're going to take about five minutes. We're going to take about five minutes. And we're just going to remember. We're not going to do this together, so we're going to do this individually. We're going to go through an exercise of actually remembering. What does it mean for you to leave this place or to be in a communion setting where you actually remember, call to mind, draw near to God with awareness of him and what he's like and he may talk to you about something totally different than what he talks to you about and bring out this aspect to you the Holy Spirit will go personal in these categories but we're going to do this together right so you can bow your heads you can kneel where you are you can pull out a passage right now in your Bible 
but fully engaged just doing one thing right now. Don't worry about anything else. Just remembering. Do this in remembrance of me. Reach outside of your life right now and remember whatever the Holy Spirit leads you to remember and begin to meditate on that. Begin to have a conversation with this personal God about that. Lord, help us right now. Lord, we need this every day. We obviously need it in moments of communion because that's why we do communion. Not just to handle emblems, but for those emblems to remind us of paragraphs of reality. So Holy Spirit, help us right now to commune with you and to remember you.